I turned it back. I turned it off on. You know, I'm just all over the place today. How's everybody doing? I have to say this, okay? This probably isn't always the right thing to say, but this place feels like home to me. <laughs> I love being here. And I guess that's okay because this is where Crossroads started. Um, it's good to be here on this beautiful day. I've seen all these beautiful people. Bless God for you. All right, let's go to 1 Samuel 7. We are starting a new series. You could call this maybe the Kings, series on the Kings. Let me just give you a quick timeline so that we know kind of where we are in terms of time in the biblical story. Abraham would be around what? B.C. I try to keep this really simple. 2,000 years before Christ, Abraham. 1,500 years before Christ, Moses. 1,000 years before Christ, David. Okay? So that's kind of just... We're jumping way ahead in terms of time. Now, this is the question, though, I want to throw out there. Why kings? And there's a lot of things I could say, but I'll just get to the heart of it. Who is Jesus? I mean, he's so many things, but first and foremost, he is the king. The king of all kings. What was Jesus message. The kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God. So what I'm going to ask you to do this morning is take off your Greek Western way of thinking. I'm going to ask you to think Hebrew. Because Jesus the king does not mean he's some British monarch. Sorry, Neil Martin. We can't possibly know what that means unless we know this part of our Bible, the Old Testament. Okay, so I'm challenging you to think Hebraically. I want to start here with this question. What is the kingdom of heaven? How would you answer that question? I mean, every sermon Jesus ever preached was about the kingdom of heaven. I'll give you a really simple definition. The kingdom of heaven is God's rule breaking into chaos, bringing shalom. It's what the first two verses of the Bible are about. First two verses of the Bible lay out the kingdom of heaven. Because the way Genesis reads, when God creates... He's not creating out of nothing. Creation begins with chaos. The world was, says Genesis, tohu vebohu. In other words, it was a chaotic mess. There's no order. There's no meaning. There's just this churning mass of chaos, of lifeless emptiness. And then God's spirit, God's word, God's rule moves into the tohu vebohu. And out of that chaos comes life, order, beauty, plants, trees, rivers, springs, mountain, deserts, people. And when God finished, he said, Shabbat Shalom. 
rest, peace. Perfect peace, perfect rest. So the kingdom of heaven, we need to see, it's, it's established in Eden. And may, maybe a more in-depth definition of the kingdom of heaven would be this. It's God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing, and bringing God's blessing and rule to the world. That's the kingdom of heaven. In fact, the way the world is framed in the opening chapters of the Bible is the world is framed into three parts. How many of you, for instance, right now think the whole world was a garden? The world that God made. It wasn't. First you have the world, but within the world, there's this place, probably a small place, called Eden. Then within Eden, the east of Eden, is an even smaller place called the garden. And you say, all right, so what? Well, this is what I want you to think about. The world was good in every way. I mean, you might even say the world was perfect. But yet, the world the good world, the perfect world, still needs ruling, subduing. In fact, that word subdue in in Genesis 1, in, in the Hebrew, it means to beat something into shape. What the world needs is a king, and it needs the kingdom to be unleashed in it. Do you see that? See, this is why God says to Adam and Eve, I'm placing you in this special garden. The garden is distinct from the world because this is the place where God dwells and it's in the garden where Adam and Eve can have this special relationship with God, where they can walk with God in the cool of the day, where they can be connected to the true vine, the tree of life. In fact, in Genesis 2 verse 15, when it says, and God placed Adam and Eve in the garden to work it and to care for it, these are the exact same two words used throughout the the Old Testament to describe the work of the priests in the temple. So the garden is the first temple. Adam and Eve are the world's first priests. It's why Adam and Eve are made in God's image because as God's representatives, they are made to reflect God and what God is like to the world. It's awesome calling. And see, it's from the garden then, this place where they're connected to God, that Adam and Eve will bring God's rule and God's blessing to bear in all creation. In other words, Adam and Eve were not made for a kuna matata. I mean, I think so many of us just think that. Like, there they are, sitting in some beach chairs, drinking margaritas. No. God says to them, here's my beautiful world. I've given you this special place. Be kings. Rule it for my glory. Be priests. Put me on display so the world can know what I'm like. Bring the reality of the garden to the world. 
And see, here's the tragedy of the garden. Adam and Eve, rather than being under God and ruling for God in his glory, they wanted to be God. They sinned. They lost the garden. They lost their temple. They lost the tree of life, the power source. And what sin did to God's beautiful creation is that the world then went back into chaos. Tohu vebohu. Animals kill animals. Brother kills brother. Thorns and thistles. Violence. Wars. Disease. Cancer. Abuse. Exploitation. And this is our world. Our world is tohu vebohu. Chaos. And for some of you right now, that describes your world right now. You are there. God makes a stunning promise right there in the garden. He he, he looks at Adam and Eve and he says, my kingdom will come again. In Genesis 3.15, which I often say, this is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. God tells Adam and Eve and then also the snake, the serpent, he looks at them and he says, there's going to be two seeds. There's going to be two kingdoms. He, he looks at the serpent and he says, from the seed of, of you, serpent, will come a kingdom of darkness, a kingdom that will bruise, a kingdom that will wound. But from you, Eve, will come the seed of my kingdom, a kingdom of priests. And from this kingdom will come a king, a new Adam in this King is going to, he's going to crush. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to destroy evil once for all. He's going to restore. He's going to redeem. He's going to resurrect. He's going to bring ultimate shalom to chaos. Amen. That's an amen. And that's why, and now I'm getting way ahead of ourselves, but when you come to the New Testament, Mark 1 verse 15, which I think is probably one of the most exciting verses in the whole Bible, when Jesus shows up and announces, the time has come, the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. The gospel is the kingdom. And see, you and I aren't going to get goosebumps or even understand what Jesus is talking about if we don't know our Old Testament. God gives us the book of Kings for a reason. Because what he's going to do is he's going to prepare our hearts for his idea of king. What his king will do and the kind of kingdom that his king will unleash. So, with that as an introduction, let's go to 2 Samuel 7. It's going to be our primary text this morning. We're going to be all over the place, okay? Just a little warning. Does anybody have a page number? 218. Turn to 218 if you have uh, one of the church's Bibles. And let's stand right now for the reading of God's word. Dan Mike is the one that gave me that. And he said it's not the right number. Was Dan Mike right or not? 
Second Samuel 7. What, what is it? 245. Thank you. You're okay, Dan. We know you just have your Bible memorized, okay? <laughs> After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from his enemies, shalom, from his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place in a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say or command their rulers who I commanded as shepherds of my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you, David, from the pasture, from tending the flock. I appointed you as ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and not be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since I have appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your seed to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. Where's your mind already going? But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house, David, and your kingdom, your seed, will endure forever and ever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. Uh, whether you know this or not, this is one of the most important texts in the whole Bible. It's about David wanting to build God a house. But God then says to David, no, David, I'm going to build you a house. It's the same word, same word in Hebrew, but a completely different idea because David is thinking bricks and mortar, but God is thinking dynasty. He's thinking of an eternal kingship. Now, first we need to know where we are in the story. And let's do this in terms of kingdom. Look at verse 1. It says, After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him shalom from all his enemies around him. So what you have here is this. You have God's people. They're now in God's place. They're under God's rule. They're enjoying God's blessing. And they're a nation of priests who are bringing God's rule and blessing to those around them. In fact, when you lay this out 
next to the framework of Genesis 1 and 2, you have the world. And within the world, you have the land of promise. You have Israel. Israel is the new Eden. And then within Israel is Zion, the garden, the garden of the Lord. And see, what David notices here is that the third part, the garden, is actually lacking. There's no place for God to dwell. There's no holy of holies. David is feeling this. He's saying, I have my house, I have my palace, but God doesn't have his house. There's no place where we can come and connect with him and be in the vine, in the tree of life, where we can walk with God in the cool of the day, where we're connected to the power source, so we can do what we need to do and be what we need to be. I love God's response to David's initiative. Because the Bible is never about our initiative, it's always first about his initiative. And God pretty much says, look, you don't build me a house. I build you a house. This is my initiative, David. It's for me to determine, not for you. In fact, I love how God puts this in, in, in verses 6 through 7, and, and, and this is my paraphrase. He basically, God says to D- David, he says, look, you know, when you dwelt in a desert, I was there with you in the desert. You dwelled in your tent, I had my tent. You now dwell in the land and have your houses? Well, a little box will do for me. Because that's what God's dwelling at this point in the story. It's called the Ark of the Lord. It's just a little box. And I think there's a takeaway here. Because we know that God isn't confined to a little space, but there are times when God says, my dwelling presence, my Shekinah, where my raw presence is, he sometimes places that. And the place where God says, I will dwell, I don't need a big temple. I don't need some elaborate multi-million dollar building to show myself off to the world. That's the way the gods work. A little box will do. And see, to me, this is so God. Because when God then is going to give the ultimate expression of who he is, his ultimate expression of his glory going to come in a little baby, not in a palace, but in some stinking stall. And when he dwells among us, he's going to say, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. That's our God. And he's always been that way. Because God loves to Take the weak things of the world to shame the mighty. Take the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Okay, so now we've come, though, to the part of the story where God is actually doing a new thing. Or maybe better yet, he's, he's putting more substance to the promises that he made to Adam and then to Abraham and then to the other patriarchs. Because what's going on here at the beginning of Samuel, 
What you see is God's people are in God's place. They're under God's rule. They're, they're enjoying God's blessing, but they have no king. So they say to Samuel, Samuel, who's the prophet or the judge or the one who's acting as the leader of Israel at that time, they say to him, they say, give us a king. Samuel then scolds them for asking for a king. You can read about this in 1 Samuel 10, 11, and 12. He says, it's a wicked thing that you've done in asking for a king. And his reason is this, Yahweh's your king. I think Samuel's right, because when you read the Psalms, who is the king of glory? The Lord, who's strong and mighty. And over and over again, the psalmist says, the Lord reigns, the Lord rules, the Lord is our king. But was it wrong for them to ask for a king? No. It's not an asking for a king where they went wrong, but it's why they want a king. Because what they say is this. They look at all the other nations around them. They see that they have kings. And they say to Samuel, we want to be just like them. We want a king who will lead us and fight our battles for us. And this so upset Samuel that he takes it to the Lord. And I love what God says to Samuel. God says, look, Samuel, it's not you they've rejected. It's me that they've rejected. But then God says this. He says, listen to them. Give them a king. And God says this because a king was always in God's plan. This goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. That seed that's going to come from the woman, it's going to produce a specific one, a specific Messiah, a Messiah who will eventually crush. Then you look at God's promise to Abraham and God says to him, kings are going to come forth from you. Then you fast forward all the way to Jacob. And Jacob, which we didn't look at this text, but when he's finally blessing his 12 sons at the end of his life, he comes to Judah and he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And then it says, he, until it, to whom it belongs shall come and to the obedience of the nations will be his. That is a promise to Judah now. Judah, you are the seed, and from your seed will come the king, the ultimate king, and the obedience of the nations will be his. You get to Deuteronomy. And just before God is about to have them enter the land, he writes writes them this book. And in Deuteronomy 17, listen to what God says. I know I'm giving you a lot of Bible here, but stay with me. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving to you and taken possession of it and have settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us so we can be like the nations around us, be sure to appoint you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is a non-Israelite. The king moreover, and here are some of the requirements. The king must not amass great numbers of horses for himself. He must not ask for the people to return to Egypt to get more horses. In fact, you know what they're supposed to do with the horses? Hamstring them. Don't become too strong. Don't become too big. And then he says, don't amass too many wives. And I love this whole part. Don't amass too much silver and gold. 
And then he says, when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of Torah taken from the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, so he's to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God. You know what the king's supposed to be? Small in his eyes. And he's supposed to be a man of the word. A student of Torah. But they ask for a king. God gives them what they want. God gives them their kind of king. He gives them a king like all the other nations. He gives to them Saul. He's a man with all the world's goods. In fact, the text says he stands a head taller than the shortest person. He's impressive. He's a man after the people's heart. In fact, at Saul's coronation ceremony, Samuel says to them, all right, here is the king you have chosen, the kind of king you have asked for. And what we see is Saul is, is, is an abysmal failure. And while Saul is still king, God then anoints his kind of king. He says, here is a man after my own heart. And that's David. In fact, I love this. When Samuel actually comes to, to Jesse, David's father, to his house, Jesse has eight sons, um, he gets so enamored, Samuel does, with the firstborn son that God has to just zap him with the message and say, don't be too impressed with him. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. He's not the one. And he goes through all seven of, of Samuel's sons, and he comes to the end, and he's like, wait a second. You have to have another son. And it's the forgotten one. It's the eighth born. It's the least. It's the smallest. It's the shepherd boy. And God says, there's my king. And I love this because God's idea of a king really starts with, with, with verse 8 of our text. Look at it. Now then. Tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock. See, God's idea of a king is first a shepherd. David was pulled from shepherding the sheep to being God's shepherd of God's flock. Same with Moses. 40 years of shepherding Jethro's flocks. Then God calls him to 40 years of shepherding God's flocks. You look at all of Israel's greatest leaders, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. These guys are all shepherds. Contrast this with Saul. What's Saul doing before he was made king? Does anybody know? He's a herder of donkeys. He's a keeper of jackasses. And he can't even keep them in. They're running all over Israel. See, the Bible wants you to see that. The biblical paradigm for leadership is that of a shepherd. 
Even in 2 Samuel 7, look at the text we're looking at. You see it right there. Wherever I have moved with the Israelites, did I ever say to their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd? Now, see, this is where I get a little bit frustrated. Because we study our Bibles. Some of us even go to seminary. Some of us become theologians. But if we don't know anything about a shepherd, a shepherd with his sheep, we're not going to understand then God's notion of king. We're not even going to understand God completely because God says, I'm a shepherd. I'll tell you one of my favorite things to do when I was in, in Israel. Anytime I had the chance to do this, I would just, I'd take it in. It was, it was food for my soul. It was watching a shepherd with her sheep. And I know we all know this, but when you see it, 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 it's just that much more moving. Sheep couldn't exist one day without their shepherd. They'd get lost. They'd be destroyed by wild animals. They went nowhere to get food, especially water. They would perish. Sheep absolutely need a shepherd to survive. And then when you watch that shepherd with his sheep, I mean, it's, it's a thing of beauty and intimacy. The shepherd simply leads them how? He just walks in front of them. I got a picture here that I just want you to see, just so you can see this. I know that's so basic. That's a shepherd. That's how a shepherd leads. It's only when they have to go through a dangerous pass or into a, a tough valley where the shepherd might get behind them and drive them. And then because, and I think you can see them if you look closely, because their flocks always have a few goats, goats are the ones that need constant corralling because goats are obstinate. They are always doing things their way, going their way. So all day long, the shepherd picks up rocks and he throws them. Just throwing them. He's slinging them. Slinging, slinging, slinging. And from a distance, it looks like, man, he's just slinging these rocks at these goats. But when you get really close, you see that that guy is such a marksman. He is throwing the rock, getting it so close to the goat, and it just turns the goat in. He leads them. He directs them by slinging these rocks at them. But the way a shepherd leads, it's primarily with his voice. And see, this too is, is contrasted with Saul because in 1 Samuel 13, verse 22, it says this. It says, only Saul and his son Jonathan had a spear. That's how Saul led. He led by the sword. He led by the spear. A shepherd leads with his voice. Now, I've seen this. I've seen where several flocks will converge on a watering hole at the same time. And you're kind of watching this and you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, how are these shepherds ever going to know what sheep are actually theirs? Well, first, every sheep, every shepherd knows his sheep by name. He names them. He numbers them. He calls them every single day. 
And those sheep know that they belong to a shepherd. So when that shepherd, when it's time to leave, all he needs to do is get up and walk. And sometimes he'll call them or he'll sing. And his sheep will just follow. In fact, because sheep are, are, are real timid, they're easily frightened animals. So especially at night or, or when the shepherd is, is, is taking his sheep through a difficult terrain, which shepherds oftentimes refer to as the valley of the shadow, one of the way, a sh- ways a shepherd comforts their sheep in that moment is he just sings. And a lot of times he'll just get right in the middle of the flock and they'll walk and he'll sing over them and his singing will comfort them. Now listen, it's no coincidence then that David has a slingshot and that David is a musician. He is God's kind of king. And I'll just think about what this means when, when, when David says, the Lord is my shepherd. He's also saying, the Lord is my king. And this is the way my king leads me and guides me and protects me and feeds me. And when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he's also saying, I am the good king. My sheep, they know me by name, they know my voice, and they follow me. Or how about Zephaniah 3, verse 17? The Lord will quiet you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. See, this is God's idea of king. It's a shepherd. It's a good shepherd. And I can't begin to show you all the passages in the Bible that just speak to this. But I'll take you to just a few. In Isaiah chapter 40, it says, See, the sovereign Lord comes. He comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lamb into his arms. He carries them close to his heart and he gently leads those who have young. Or Ezekiel 34. I mean, read this whole chapter this week. God is just chastising the the, the shepherds, the under-shepherds of Israel. But then he says, for this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep. I will look after them as a shepherd looks after the scattered flock. And he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out of the nations. I will gather them from the countries. I will bring them into their land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in the settlements of the land. And I will tend them and lead them in a good pasture. God's kind of a king, is a shepherd. Second thing the text says, that God's king is God's son. A son of God. Look at verses 12 
13 and 14. When your days are over, David, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one through whom I will build a house for my name, and I will establish his kingdom forever. Now listen to this. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And see, this is elaborated further into Psalm 2, which I wish I had time to show you, but please read that today. So that when you get to the New Testament, and it says that Jesus is the Son of God, don't just be throwing that into some philosophical category stating that Jesus is deity. He is deity. But what that means is first, Second Samuel 7. He's God's son, and God is a father to him. It means Psalm 2. You're like, okay, well, what does this mean then? Well, up until this point, God's people have been called God's son. When you go to Exodus 4, and you see God talking to Pharaoh... God says, Israel is my firstborn son. You let my firstborn son go into the desert and worship me, or I will kill your firstborn son. Hosea 11 verse 1 says the same thing about Israel. My people are my son. They're a firstborn son to me. Well, it's not like God's people then are, are being replaced or losing their status. But here's what's going on. Now that there's a king... The king now becomes Israel's representative. Just like the high priest. On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That one time a year when the high priest would go before the Lord, stand in the Holy of Holies. He would do this as Israel's representative. And so he'd act as a one-man show. One man representing the people. Here's our best. Same with the king. The king is the new Adam. The king now represents the people before God. Because before there was a king, it's all about the people and all about their faithfulness to God. And it's not that that doesn't matter anymore, but now it's all about the king and the king's faithfulness to God. Everything now rises and falls on the king. Even the covenants that God has made with Adam and Abraham, they are going to run through the king. That's why God is affirming right here in these passages. The Abrahamic covenant to David in verse 9, he promises him a great name. In verse 10, he promises him a land, a land of rest. And then when you get to verses 15 and 16, he says, David, your throne's going to be forever. Meaning his seed, his throne, it's going to reign forever and ever. And by his seed, all the nations now are going to be blessed. And I'll tell you where we see this so clearly. Is in David and Goliath. I'm glad we can talk about David and Goliath this morning. I had to. Can't talk about David without talking about the story. Who's Goliath? He's a Philistine. Well, just go to 1 Samuel 17.
He's a representative of the world. He's a person of the world. He's a person for the world. And when you look at verses 4 through 7, where you get this description of, of Goliath, it tells us he has a spear. And this is not just a spear, but this is the spear of all spears. Because he is the ultimate Darwinian man. He has all the world's goods. He's a champion. He's the biggest. He's the strongest. He's the bestest. That's Goliath. Now the text says he's six cubits. Tall. And we immediately want to know, okay, well, how tall is a cubit? Then it says his spear weighs 600 shekels. And we immediately want to ask, well, how much does a shekel weigh? But what we should be asking is, why does the author give us his height and not his weight? And, and why does the author describe his spear tip and not his sword? And then also, why does the author give us six detailed descriptions of Goliath and not four or eight or ten? Because what is Goliath asking for? Give me a man. And six is the number for man. And so if Goliath had a uniform, what would his number be? Six, six, six. Same with Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 3, this image that he sets up for the people to worship. It's 60 cubits high, it's six cubits broad, and it's worship when the music is played from six specific instruments. 666 is also in the Bible the number for what? The Antichrist, the one who stands against the Lord's anointed. Well, what happens in the previous chapter to chapter 17? God anoints David. He Mashiachs the Messiah. And see, if you didn't catch all of this, the author also lets us know that Goliath's armor has scales. Scales. What has scales? Snake. And see, here is this ultimate man, and he's, this is what he's saying in verse 8. He's saying, give me a man. Rather than our arm, armies fighting, you just give me your best. Give me your representative. We will fight And all the people of the loser will become slaves to the winner. Now, here's the question. Who should be fighting this battle? Saul. The king. Saul is Israel's Goliath. I mean, he's a head taller than everybody else. He's the one with the spear. He's their king. In fact, you want to hear the sarcasm of David when he's actually talking to Saul? He basically says, hey, Saul, you know what? As a shepherd, when a lion or a bear threatens my flock, I go out, I kill it. You, Saul, have a lion out there, and you are the shepherd. You are the king. What are you going to do about it? 
And then you look at what Saul places his confidence in. He's like, David, here, you got to have my armor. Because Saul has become a man of the world, and he's trusting the world's goods. And I love this. David, on, a, on the other hand, he goes out as a shepherd. He goes out with his sling. In fact, you know the irony of this? What tribe is Saul from? Benjamin. What are the Benjaminites known for? They're the best slingers in the world. (laughs) Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Paul has been corrupted with the world. But look at the source of David's confidence. I mean, his speech to Goliath might be one of my favorite texts in the whole Bible. He says to Goliath, you come at me with sword and spear. You come at me with all the world's stuff, all the world's strength. But today, I come against you in the name of the Lord, the Almighty. And on this day, I'll strike your head. I'll crush it. So that the world will know there's a God. And how does he kill him? He crushes his head. And see, when a Jew reads this, you know what they say? Ah, God's being faithful to Genesis 3.15, the anointed one. He's come, and he's crushed the head of the serpent. And how does David, how does Goliath fall? Forward, face down, before the Lord's anointed. The king, he comes to crush evil. God uses the weak things of this world to shame the mighty. He uses the small things of this world to shame the strong. He uses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. You know, as good as this is, here's the problem with David. That while David is called to be a part of God's solution, to be God's king, to fix a broken world, David is still a part of the problem. Because like the first Adam, immediately following 2 Samuel 7, David, like the first Adam, will eat the forbidden fruit. And that's what we're going to learn as we look at the kings. But see, what David does is he prefigures, he points us to the ultimate David who is to come, who's going to conquer the ultimate Goliath. And today, whether you know this or not, we have a king. A king. Do you see him? Do you know him? And what kind of king is it that you want today? Do you want one with sword and spear and armor? Or do you want God's kind of king? Because 
God's kind of king, when you see how he conquers, he didn't come with sword or spear, but he came to take the sword and the spear so that we wouldn't have to take the sword and the spear. And this is how he conquers evil without conquering us. This is how his kingdom is unleashed. This is how he defeats evil. This is how he crushes the head of the serpent. This is how he brings shalom to chaos. He is our representative. He lived the life we were supposed to live. He died the death we deserve to die. Now just consider right now the giants in your life. The tohu ve bohu. The chaos. Here's my question that I want to end with. Has his kingdom come to you? Has the rule of God brought shalom to your chaos? See, I think so often that we think that we're going to conquer the giants. We're going to conquer the, the chaos. We're, we're going to conquer the toho vebohu in our own life by being the hero. But listen to me, we don't conquer it by being the hero. We conquer it by having the hero, by trusting the hero, because the Bible lets us know there's only one hero. There's only one representative. There's only one champion. There's only one king. Behold him. Trust him. Give your life to him. Because you know what I love about this story is when Israel saw their king, they moved from fear to getting in the battle. He is the good shepherd, the good king, who lays down his life for his sheep. Do you want a king? Or do you want to be the king? Because if you really want the king, the way you come to this king is you bow, you kneel, you hand over your sword with the handle facing him, the blade facing you. Because the only way to come to a king is you you give up power. You give up your control. You don't come on your terms. You don't come negotiating. You don't come making him fit into your agenda. But you trust him with everything. You literally hand over to him your life. Because he is the king. And this is the only way his kingdom and his rule will come into your life and bring shalom chaos. Come to him. Bow to him. He is the king, I tell you. Let's pray. God, we're just part of something cosmic and massive. The most exciting thing going on right now is kingdom of heaven that's being unleashed in this world and for this world and for your glory. I just pray, God, that we would see your king, 